For the past few weeks, we've been studying, of course, the Ramban. We divided the Ramban's commentary into about 20 or 25 different categories that define the Ramban as a commentary, as a parashan. And from each one of these categories, we've given different examples. As, for example, the Ramban is the most prominent of those who write introductions to his commentaries. And we discussed the issue of what introductions have to do with a person's whole approach to whatever he's writing. You raise the question, why didn't she write introductions and why did the Ramban write introductions? What does that really mean? All the more so, when you speak of something like introductions to Agra Ishaq, when I tell you to read my introductions first, I'm already giving you the slant. I'm not telling or allowing you to actually read the text on its own and be challenged by it and have questions by it, by it. I am rather telling you what to think in my introduction. I don't want you to read the text and then read my commentary. I don't want you to be perplexed by the text and then solve your problems by my commentary. To the contrary, I'm telling the introduction what you're supposed to understand about this particular section of Torah itself. So introductions is a very significant, <coughs> not only methodolo- methodological issue, introductions Issues. issues and solve them. In the introduction? Yeah, yeah. Or just raise them? Both. No, both. Abarbanel actually just raises questions. Abarbanel. Right. Abarbanel is an interesting. We never spoke about Abarbanel, but Abarbanel has an interesting approach to this. He raises 50 questions on every section and then he answers them. So he, he does more than that. He raises more because you would have had. And he has his solutions to them. And Abarbanel, of course, doesn't do that and raises them. We talk about Emuk Darum Bohad Torah. What's the Abarbanel's approach to the non-chronological issues that take place in Torah itself. We also spoke about his approach as to defending the traditional commentaries while attacking what we would say the more radical, critical commentaries. That is, for example, Rashi defending outwardly, openly, and Ibn Ezra always on the downside of his commentary. We also dealt with the issue of how he deals with contradictions. When the Torah contradicts itself, or when the Torah repeats itself, excessively so, all of these issues were dealt with in terms of Ramban's commentary. Now, of course, there are other areas that have to be pursued before fully understanding Ramban's commentary. What did he do as a commentator? What are the issues, for example, the role that Kabbalah plays in this commentary? The first commentary that uses Kabbalah as a systematic tool for explaining the Torah text. So one wants to know that. After Ramban, it becomes much more common. Many, many commentaries afterwards will provide us with Kabbalistic commentaries, as opposed to the Ramban, which is what we call a moderate Kabbalist, the much more extreme, where everything is a Kabbalistic issue. Good. His issue or role that Shandarash played in his commentary. You want to know about that. That's a critical issue. How he deals with Chazal is an important issue. How does he deal with Chazal are contrary to what he thinks should be the right explanation. Here, in certain contexts, he calls Chazal wrong, which is very striking when he says that. Or, for example, we would want to explore the Ramban, we'll get to this later on, how he does this with Ta'amiyah Mitzvot. Not every commentary is concerned about Ta'amiyah Mitzvot. The Rambam is very concerned about it, and the Ramban is very concerned about it, and in fact, the Ramban will attack the Rambam in his view of Ta'amiyah Mitzvot. I think in a class a couple of years ago, we did in fact compare the Ramban and the Rambam on a number of different issues. For example, Shiluah HaKen. There's a great there's a comparison. We did that at one particular point. As well as the Agra As well as their approach to Korbanot. There are multiple issues where in the specific area of Tamiyah Mitzvot, these two commentaries, though coming out of the same Spanish medieval tradition, are radically different as to how to approach the issue of Tamiyah Mitzvot. So that's something that one would want to at least touch upon to get a sense of what this commentary is all about. Or in general, what one would want to know about is what ideas, ideals, and, value, and values 
percolate throughout his commentary. What is he really all about? What agenda, if any, is he pushing? If an answer is a pushing agenda of clear shot, at least in the short commentary. Of course, he has another longer commentary that most people don't study. The book of Shemot has his long commentary. If you ever compared it, which you should have, Shemot and Devarim, Devarim is very sh- short, and Ibn Ezra, and Shemot is very long. Yes, he wrote two different commentaries for two different purposes, two different audiences. One is a grammatical commentary, which just gives you what the text is really saying to you, and the other is a much longer, expansive philosophical commentary. And he wrote two. Both on, on the whole. Yeah. Why do you say Devarim is one and because when the editor put in the first rabbinic Bible of 1528, whatever it was, the first rabbinic Bible, Yaakov ben Hayim, as we once discussed, was the person who put together the first rabbinic Bible. And he became a Christian. And then we denied it. Then Eliyahu Bahur, put the, we denied the commentary, we, his, his production. We, threw, we, we couldn't deal with it, obviously not. And then Eliyahu Levitas, <coughs> we got married, called Eliyahu Bahur, he put the second rabbinic Bible together. Who some say at the end also became an apostate. Some say as well. But in any case, yeah, that's what we have in front of us. And he just used the best manuscripts that he had. He became an apostate. Yeah, it's all in volume 16. Volume 16 of the Encyclopedia. We said this before. The huge yes, you part of the huge article on the Masoretic text, which everybody wants to read. It's a very technical article. It's, it's a huge article, but it's an interesting article. Gives you a lot of that stuff that we spoke about. So in any case. So he just used whatever manuscripts he had. So he didn't get the best Rashi manuscript. It could have been reversed. Right. So there's history to to every manuscript. Yeah, we should have them. They're not all published. We should. Long commentary. Right. No, I don't believe we have both of them. I don't remember the whole entire story, but I don't believe we have both. We have. um, We probably don't have both. We certainly have the Shemot, we have the other ones. And we have fragments of the other ones. I don't believe we have all of his longer commentary. I'm sure we have all of it. And we probably have the short Shemot also we found, but not the, the long of the others. So it's interesting. But in any case, <coughs> what agenda does that particular commentary push? Whether it's... <coughs> is, it, is it de-anthropomorphizing in its concern? Targum Ankelos is a commentary whose main intent is to de-anthropomorphize the text. Critically important. That's his main issue. So wherever it says Elohim, right? He said that doesn't mean Elohim, it means men of great stature. Because he's got to get rid of all those anthropomorphisms. That's his main angle. Some commentators have angles, have agendas, some don't. JPS does not have a angle. It's whatever the if it's a Peshat oriented commentary, he defines Peshat and tries to get the Peshat. Transbiblically, historically, archaeologically, geographically. But that is agenda. Yeah. The agenda is to provide what the text meant to the Jews who first heard it, which is how you define Peshat. It's not a halach Peshat. There's no halach issues in there at all. Hirsch, on the other hand, is a rabbinic Peshat oriented commentary. Meaning, if you're teaching Devarim, which is a lot of halacha from, let's say, the book of. Um, on, or say even earlier, let's say better. Half of the ayan on is all halachot. How do you teach that without knowing the halachot? Which means you have to know all the gemarot and every one of these halachot. You've spent five years just studying Kansipur, or Besorero Moreh, or the laws of inheritance, Bechor Pishinayim, 
So what do you do? How do you get information? Study text alone is not what you do in yeshiva high schools. So what do you do? So you have two choices. One choice is to do the Rambam, which is what I do. Go through all the Rambam and those issues. And then you have a summary of the rabbinic law on that particular halakha from the book of Devarim. Good? Right. Right, so here I don't need ancient ancient texts. If I'm doing other books, I may need ancient texts. I mean, whatever comes I want to use. But here I just need halakha. Straight off. How does this really make sense? Not the Rambam. So one angle is that. On the other hand, but let's say you don't have enough time to study all of the Rambam until I am. It's 12 or 13, 15 chapters. How do you do that? So two, you don't have the time to do two Pesukim of Kilayim, which is in Devarim, and study all the Rambam. Ideally, yes, but practically you don't. So you go to Hirsch. Hirsch is selected as a rabbinic commentary. Right? Hirsch will give you a, a tamsit, some idea, as to what the Gemara is saying about that particular issue. But 19th century rationalization of it, which sometimes is good for high school students, and that's what you use Hirsch for. But you know what you're getting. That's the point. What is his agenda was? Defense against reform, defense against conservatism, defense against um, some biblical criticisms, and no, not. Yes, I'd say that as well. That's his angle on these issues. Okay, good. So you want to get a sense of what the ideas, ideals, and values of the commentary is, and what's he pushing? What, if he has an agenda, what is his, in fact, agenda? Right? In general, one should always try to be attuned, paying attention the values that a particular biblical commentary is expressing. Now, we want to do tonight, in honor of the holiday of Purim, as we do the holiday of Hanukkah, is to not pursue the categories and then find examples, but actually to do the reverse. To pursue Ramban's commentary, but going in the opposite direction that we've gone for these last three weeks, or four weeks. Right? What does that mean? We want to rather than describe his commentary from a series of classifications and examples, which is really the shortest way of getting to an understanding of the commentary, right? Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you'd have to just go through the whole commentary and then create the categories. Somebody said that for us. So we're learning in a, an abbreviated form, relying on the person who put the, this together to get a general sense of it. We're not studying this as the PhD thesis would. We're getting a general sense of it and getting an idea as to who the Ramban is a commentary, which is very valuable. However, sometimes what one could do is balance off that approach with the opposite approach, which means studying a particular section itself and then inductively creating the category as opposed to deductively having a category classification and then seeing what it, how it plays itself out. Is that clear? No, not clear. Why are you not clear about it? Why are you perplexed about it? No, okay. Right? So it's a whole different approach. But it's a valuable approach. And really it could be done both together. So in Hanukkah, we just took a section that is. It happens to be that I knew that section. It has to do with Hanukkah. And his opinion and approach to the Maccabim and the whole story of Hanukkah. So we read that and we ended up seeing how he'll use a pasuk in a fairly striking way. Here's a pasuk, Ad ki shiloh of Yehuda in Berkot Yaakov and end up in, you'd call left field, condemning the Maccabees for taking over political sovereignty though they were Kohanim. That does tell me something about his commentary. It tells me how far afield he goes. Now, interestingly enough, nobody else that I've ever seen in any commentary ever did that. Ever spoke about the Hanukkah story in the context of that Pasuk. Much more often, they use that Pasuk for what purpose? Christian polemics. Because the Christians say that means Yeshu. The Jews shall rule 
Ad until Yeshu comes from Shiloh. Velor meaning Yeshu, Yikihat Amin. Everybody will become a follower of his. So then the Rashbam will polemicize knowing the Septuagint against that Christian view of that Pasuk. Ramban wasn't interested in that issue. So he doesn't mention that at all for whatever reason it is, although he was involved in Christian polemics and it's very striking because although he probably wrote this before he had his Christian plus, but he was involved in the Barcelona dispute of 1263. Intensely and heavily so. And after that he went right straight to Israel. So he knew Christian polemics but it wasn't a concern of his. You should raise the question why not? And Ashram had no issue about writing it publicly in his commentary. How stupid they are because they don't understand the text. He criticized them saying you don't understand the Peshat and they didn't understand Hebrew. So they blew the call. And why was he not afraid of, of consequences and Namban may not have commented on commented on it because he was afraid of consequences because he understood the consequences he knew the consequences because he was involved and Ashbam was not enough in the outside world to be concerned about what they would say about his particular comment right so it depends upon how isolated you are it's interesting that in the realm of polemics either between Jews and non-Jews or between within the Jewish community depending upon who you are and your stature and your public persona you could say a more or less radical <coughs> statement. Meaning course, that if you have... Exactly. So if you're, let's say, for example, Rabbi Avigdor Miller, you could say anything you want about anything and you will get away with it because you're Avigdor Miller. And your credentials are already proven. If you're, let's say, Rabbi Shammah, who's already suspect, you say that it's even innocent and you'll be attacked for it because you're Rabbi Shammah. Or Rabbi Adin... has a huge following, from what I understand. A huge following. Huge. I mean, he's, he's in his 90s. I mean, I don't think he's still giving shiurim. But what he's built over there, his synagogue and his yeshiva, wherever he has over there, and his son now takes over and branching out to down the block. You take. Depending upon who you are and what you could actually say. That's a critically important point. Right? Within as well as without. So what we want to do now is to take this text and see what issues are of concern to the Ramban. We want to build our classification based on at least a small model. Now, what would be the most appropriate issue for Hanukkah, for Purim? What do we do on Purim? No, we don't count on Megillah. And that would not be good either because that might be a whole different story. His commentary, all right, his commentary, his commentary on Megillah might be a whole different angle than his Pashanut. We're analyzing his Pashanut over here, right? So, there are two texts that you want to look at. You want to open up at the same time the text in Shemot and the text in Bereshi and Devarim, right? We have, here's Shemot, okay? We should have another one over there. You open up first the Parashat Beshalah. And we look at the last section of Bishalah, right? Everybody's with us. And at the same time, you want to open up to okay. his commentary on Bishalah. So we need this, or we need the book? No, you want the book. Why do I need the book? Do you the contract? Good. So why do you need the book? In <laughs> fact, I would have got this. That's good enough. You do need that. Why do you need the book now? That's my next question to you. I, I'm insisting that you should read the text. Why do I want you to assist the text? Why do I want you to read the text? Why is it important before you read the comments, read the text? 
No. Not only that. That's simple. No, not because you have to know what you're dealing with. Of course you know what you're dealing with. No, what's my issue over here? You want to know what your issues in this text are to see whether or not he is concerned about your issues one way or the other. What do I mean by that? You read Akadah Yitzhak. What are your issues? What's your issues by Akadah Yitzhak? How could... Right, the ethical question. How could God command such an ethical and unethical issue? Is that Ramban's concern? Is that Ashi's concern? What would, it be, what would be the case if no commentary ever raised the ethical issue? If you raise the question, why? Why do we have that ethical issue? And they didn't have that ethical issue. Tell us a lot about them and their world view, their world perspective. How they understood religion. They may not have the issue because once God commands, we accept, case closed. That's their world view on anything. Or that's the world view that they projected upon Abraham, obviously. Our perspective is very different. We look at a text and we say, what? How does that happen? How could that be? We go nuts when we read a section like that. So you could raise the question, what is our perspective on the text as opposed to their perspective on the text or on the philosophy of religion? Right? All that's part of it. So now, we would want to first look at our text and see what our issues are all about. So we look at Yud Zayin of Bishalach. Amalek comes and does battle against Israel and Ephidim. So my question, of course, would be, why mention to me Ephidim? Why is that so? Because I know from the last section, I look at chapter 17, verse 1, Exactly. So now, why tell me that again? Is that an issue? Not an issue. And 17.8. Right? So we have that question. I think it's a legitimate question. Good. Here's a very interesting point that nobody, nobody, I'm cheating a little bit now, because nobody here is going to raise, I quite guarantee you, the next issue that the, that the Ramban has raised. Look at this Pasuk again and raise the question. Pasuk Teth. Sorry? Why are we going to fight Amalek at that moment? They fought me. They attacked me. That's no problem. Pasuk Teth. No. Well, no, Eli's right. Eli raised another issue. How did Moshe do this without Hashem's involvement, sanction, prayer, anything? What should have come first here? The horse or the cart? One, we would have thought, Eli would have thought, that his understanding of biblical warfare, at least in the books of is that first you ask Hashem, what do I do now? Should I do battle? What should I do now? Well, it's Eli's case. I'm saying what Eli's issue was. Wait, if, if you're being attacked, right, what you pray! What does Moshe do with Kiyat Yamsuf? He's surrounded. He prays first, and Hashem says to him, So now, I might answer Eli and say, Look, Moshe learned already from Yamsuf, which just happened a couple of Pesukim ago, right? A couple of, uh, what Yamsuf happened? Gotta help stuff. No, just right before this, right? Yeah, yeah a couple of chapters ago. Sure, yeah. Correct. So that Moshe already learned you got to do battle first and pray later. So that might be the answer to your question. Right? Okay, that's an interesting point. 
No, the issue that I was referring to that I never would have thought of without the Ramban's commentary is why does Moshe tell Yeshua to do this and not do it himself? One issue. Second issue. What bothers you with the name Yeshua? Which again, none of you have thought about and you should have thought about it but you didn't think about it because of certain premises that you have in approaching our text. Exactly. Right. That's a major issue. In the Midbar, well, you, are you solving the question or are you raising the question? Yahushua happens in the Midbar Miragilim. So how do you solve that? That's the chicken way out. Right. Midbar will not say that. Okay, I'm not interested in your answers right now. Either. I'm interested in just raising the questions. Right. And it's interesting how you had the answer and therefore didn't raise the question. But when you have the answer and don't raise the question, you are precluding other insights into the, in the text. Did he ever call Other than to say that his name has changed? No. He's always called Yahshua. Okay, right. That's why we don't have the question. But Ramban has a big issue with that. Now, furthermore... And when, asked, when was he brought up before this Yahshua? How often? No, not often at all. After hard, no? At Har Sinai, you wouldn't get to that yet. Probably not over here. That's later on. This might be the first occurrence. Okay, next. Next question would be, why are you going up to a mountain? And why are you taking this mater? What are you going, does he use the mater for anything? Actually, not. So why is he taking it? Okay, good. Is that, that is your answer? But he doesn't use it to do anything. There he used it. Furthermore, why Yosha give ah? Why are you going up? So you're sure this. Well, let's see if it tells us anything. Okay, see the battle. But for what purpose? No, for them to see him. Well, let's see if it says that. Does it all good? Moshe Aaron Nehul Alu Yosha give ah. Okay, you may raise the question: What's the purpose of Aaron and Hul? Why did they go up there? Then you don't know that yet. So at this point, you may raise that question. Now here comes a famous question. How could that be? That's already the Mishnah has that issue already. Are the hands of Moshe victorious in battle? Are they doing battle? So that's yeah, right. So that's a great question. Look at the cause of how do you get out of that question without invoking something other than the Peshat? Okay, don't worry about it. It's a question. And whenever he puts his hands down, Amalek wins. And Yudbert says, his hands are too tired, too heavy. They took an Evan, a, a rock, they put it under him, sat on it. This is a very bizarre text. And then Aaron and Hur grabbed his hands. They held his hands up. That's what did the battle? How could that be? That's what one would think about. But we know that's not a legitimate answer. We can't use that as an answer. So we really have a problem over here making this make sense. Okay, but that's what it is. We have a question over here. And yet, okay, his hands are trustworthy until the sun set. Now, 13 Yavriah, he only weakened them. He didn't destroy them. He weakened them. It's a very odd context. And you probably would not find this context in any other context in all of Tanakh where... You can weaken them according to the sword, by the sword. Usually, if you kill them by the sword, you don't weaken them by the sword. Obvious point, right? Good. 
we read further 14. Here you have for the only time to write something down in a book, with the exception of, of Hazinu. But this is a unique context. Hazinu is different. Here you have write in the book, assume, and, and maybe a different book. Okay, whatever it may mean. And place in Yeshua. We have something similar but not exact in Hazinu. I shall erase the memory of Amalek from under the heavens. Moshe builds an altar, Vayikra Shemur. Who called it Vayikra? What are the possibilities? Moshe or, other possibility at least? God. God, right. Vayikra Shemur, God is my Nisi, my banner. No, Vayikra Shemur, God called it, quote, Hashem Nisi. I'm just raising this possibility. And then he said, who said? Hashem Moshe, Kiyakisya, the hand Whose hand? Kiyad Akesia. What does that mean, Yad Akesia? What does the word Kes mean? The word Kisya thrown, misspelled. Missing the Aleph. So, of course, why is that so? Okay, that's a nice Midrash interpretation. Is it the shadows of the Midrash? And whose hand is there? Is it a hand of Amalek on the throne of God? Or is it, what's another possibility? It could be Moshe's hand. Or is it and hand in oath, God's oath, that Hashem is taking an oath over here. Right? Any one of those people The Hamal Hashem on the Shagazuns. Now we look very quickly, because it's getting late, to Kitetzer. Remember, now interestingly enough over here, various places in Devarim, you have Moshe recounting that which took place in Shemot. With usually variations, right? Over there are variations. Here in Devarim, Katev, Asuk Zayin, I don't have the backdrop. I don't have the place. I'm not really sure it's mentioned here at all. I don't have anything that has to do with the Baptist place in Bishalach, which is unusual, with the exception of the Zahor connection. So, that's interesting. Other times in Devarim, I have backdrops. I have reference points. I have repetitions. Here I don't have that at all. Why not? Now, question. Is that a legitimate question? I could talk to you about. That Sihon I could talk to you about. Whatever I repeated over here, I could show you a much closer correspondence than I can over here. So my question... Well, I, you know, all that halachot. It's all halachot. Which might solve your problem. But don't I need the backdrop? Okay, let's see that as a... I think it's a legitimate question. But okay, let's... Hold on there for a second. Remember that which I'm going to give to you by Derek Sikhem of Islam. Good. Asher Karchaba Derek, it attacked you as if this is something new now. So he's repeating with all new questions. Asher Karchaba, do I have this in Bishalach? Not at all. Right? That took place in the workplace. But Zanev attacked you from behind all of those who are stragglers after you. Not? We're not told that. Told that at all. Correct. And you were tired and weary. A, not told that. And B, big deal. Why tell that over here? And you're not learning him. Now, who is not fearing God? Man, who's them? That's as big as, as this. Right? Could be either one. Did you do that intentionally? Yeah. Oh, okay. Thank you. That's nice of you. 10, 25, 60. You're still making fun of me. Where are him? Okay, interesting because... So, you're saying it refers to you being a No, I'm not Okay, but good biblical style often 
will change subjects in midstream without telling which doing so. So therefore you're saying it's Amalek. And you're saying it's B'nai Israel? Right. Of course you understand it. I understand, but like what's the problem? No, to the contrary. That's just polemic. That they were atheists. Nobody in the ancient world was an atheist. They didn't feel the consequences. We don't really mean atheists over here. What we mean is they were, we call in ancient literature, otios deities, which means a God who does not act, a God who is not providential. So Amalek did not care about any moral law and could attack with impunity even the weak, the poor, infirm, right. So that's what might be the attack against Amalek. And it makes it that it's Amalek. Why? Because this whole entire thing is trying to damn, condemn Amalek. So this would be the ultimate of condemnation. On the other hand, Mr. Joseph's point is very well taken. Why is it very well taken? This is referring to B'nai Israel. Because he read B'Shalach very well, which means when he looked at B'Shalach and he saw Pasuk Zayin of chapter Yud Zayin, by they questioned. Israel did not do it. So now you have a great question that both opinions are really solidly rooted. One in condemning Amalek and the other in condemning B'nai Israel. So to whom is Moshe referring over here in Elohim? And my answer would be? No. No. Yeah, you should you hear long enough to know intentional ambiguity. That the text in, often enough is intentionally ambiguous and would like us to see both as options refers to both and neither at the same time. Meaning, I can interpret this shot-wise as both, or at t- times I may want to only, only as I'm a lick, so I want to have a commitment, I want to play sale, and the other one. I think you're reading into it. Or am I reading into it? Right, that's an interesting possibility. I don't think I am. I think that's intentional. This could be read either way, either of their interpretations well, are good. It can be. What do you say to this? Certainly referring to Amalek. Oh, certainly referring to Amalek. <laughs> Although is a great proof of that. That's what it means. Okay, but that's what it's talking about. How can you I I think certainly not certainly with a capital C, I think it's certainly maybe with a small C. And maybe smaller than a small C. But let's go on because we have time. When Hashem wants to now here, of course in Mishalah it's Imhe, here it's Timhe. You all knew that without me telling you that. Because you read this many times in the past. Timhe, as opposed to, and certainly people that read Sefer Torah professionally have made this point, say personally. Timhe in Bishalach, Imhe in Bishalach, and Timhe Kititzeh. So you want to know why is that? Timhe, you wipe out the memory of Amalek from under the heavens. Here it's Imhe Zechalat Mutachat Hashamayim. Right? Here we have an additional don't forget. Now I don't have that in Bishalach because it's God who's saying it, not B'nai Israel to do it. So certainly God's not going to forget. But what is the force of this Lotishkach? And more important is... Okay, but more correct. More important, however, is what does it really mean? Erase the memory of Amalek. I don't know what that means. Exactly. Remember to erase. Exactly. Remember, don't yeah, forget no, erase to erase the memory. Erase the memory, so that we shouldn't think yeah. about them. But, you, but Zachor and Lotishka. Remember what they did? Don't forget to erase the memory. 
Don't, right, so therefore, erase, erase the memory. Right, so you don't want to don't forget happened. to do that. Right. So once I've, once, I've, once I've erased the memory, then what happens? Then you, then you, you can... Do I... Are you what? forgetting about it? Right. No, that's so you're done. remembering. Yeah. Then I'm done. I've completed the job. So... No, you're missing the intent. No, what is the intent of that? What's the, the intent? I think it means to remember Amalek. Every speech I give... It should be to remember. By the way, I was criticized heavily by my Saturday speech about this topic, and I just want to have your opinion, by actually one person. Well, you Black said No, well, as I've said, it was much too complex. It was too complex. I couldn't follow it. You, you were off base. I think it was complex. Complex? It's too complex. It's what he used. Which one? The most recent one? Don't take it personally, Bobby. <laughs> what we have is issue is what is the mitzvah? To remember the evil of Amalek or to forget the evil of Amalek? So the standard interpretation always is to remember the evil of Amalek and to fight against it. Is that what it says? To remember a race, the memory of Amalek. So we should not have any memory of Amalek, so therefore then we have to, there's no issue over here. So that very roughly is about seven or eight or nine issues that one can raise comparatively. Is that a curse? Is that a curse like you say? What do you mean? What? Yeah, Yemach Shemur means right? erase his oh, name. Yeah, that's what it comes from. Is that what's going on here in the past? Yeah, I would think so. No, 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 no. Don't forget your No, 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 no. You're going to do... Well, interesting, halakhically, if we're only polemical in that sense, it'd be interesting. But it's not. Over here, we're really saying over here, the mitzvah say over here is to destroy Amalek. Halakhically, destroy Amalek. Timchem means destroy, do battle against Amalek. Wait a second, wait. Halakhab, I'm saying, Devarim, if you Devarim, the Peshat of Devarim, Timchadzef Amalek, is that telling you to kill them? Or this is no, the memory of the memory they did to you. Right, but is it uh, not to kill them? Right, it's not telling you. To That's kill my them. point. Right, okay. it's a very serious point because what happens in Shemuel Aleph is God tells Shemuel Shaul. For somebody raised the question, I forget where I read this. Maybe some email or something. Why does Hashem tell Shaul to go destroy Amalek if it's if it's about Asif from the Torah itself? If you look at the text in Shemuel Aleph, Pirkei Tevav, why does Hashem go out to tell Shemuel? It's one of the three misfortunes that Jews had to do. Go to Ben-Mikdash, appoint a king, and destroy Amalek. Those are the three misfortunes that Jews had to do upon coming into Israel. So now, you have to first appoint a king, we did that. Now it comes time to do this. So if it's clear that that's one of the misfortunes, why did Shashem tell Shaul to go do it, rather than him doing it on his own? Which is an interesting question, in terms of how you understand this. Or is it something separate? So what does this mean, and what does that mean? What does this mean halakhically? What does this mean according to the Peshat of the text? So halakha really deviates from what you're saying is the pshat of the text. So that's a number of issues that one could raise over here. What I would want, what I wanted to do, which we don't have the time to do right now, is to, low battery, is to look at the Ramban's commentary, which you have in front of you, and see what are his issues. We raised about 12 issues, that most of which are important issues to raise as a person reading a text. 20 century people reading a text, or maybe as a 12th century person reading a text. Are there different issues? Mine are literary issues and conceptual issues. Right? And comparative issues. Comparative, literary, comparative, conceptual. Good. Okay. Very nice. And we should try to answer these issues without using any commentaries. However, it's interesting to see what the Ramban's concerns are. And when seeing what the Ramban's concerns are, you'll see how he approached this text. So he's building what we call before a category. When you see this, you see he was issued, wait about A, B, C, D which I underlined or whatever wrote at the bottom. 
So that's how you get a sense of what his commentary is all about. What his issues are all about. You could play the game and try to figure out what are his issues. Are there any Kabbalistic overtones to Amalek? Is a question you might want to ask. You know he's a Kabbalistic writer. Is he going to put this into Kabbalist context? As he does other issues. Okay, that's one issue. Is there any Hazal issues that he's going to have to either defend them or attack them on? What's his sense of Shah, which we didn't do yet? What's his sense of Shandarash? So we didn't analyze that yet, but once, once that's analyzed, how is that going to play into his reading of the Pshat and or the Rash of these texts? Okay, so we'll do that next week. Tuesday night, should we say? Yeah, okay. Um, Tuesday is good.